We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, this evening. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, turn there or it's in your, it's in your bulletin. So uh, on Friday at 1 o'clock, uh, I watched the match. If you know what the match was, it was Tiger Woods versus Phil Mickelson. It was a $9 million winner-take-all uh, match play event uh, in Las Vegas. Um, I think it went 22 holes, something like that. Phil Mickelson won. It was fun. It was exciting. I'm a big golf fan. Uh, if you're a golf fan and you watched it, it was exciting for you. Uh, but it, it doesn't matter how many tournaments you've watched on television. Uh, it doesn't actually matter how many PGA Tour events you've attended. It doesn't matter uh, if you have been to a major championship like the PGA Championship or the U.S. Open. They're a blast. They're exciting. They're fun. They're memorable. But nothing compares to being in Augusta, Georgia in early April for the Masters. It's the Mecca of golf. Amen. <laughs> and all God's people said amen. Uh, when, when you come off of, I think it was at Washington Avenue, you, you enter into the gates and you enter into another world. Um, even if you've been there more than once, it's an emotional experience every single time. If you come early in the morning, you get to see the, the sunrise over the tall Georgia pines. And you, you bear witness to the, the most uh, vibrant colors that you've ever seen. The greenest green. Bright purple and pink azaleas in bloom. White dogwood trees. It's, it's beautiful. It's picturesque. It's pristine. There's no weeds in sight. They don't allow cameras in there, uh, and so you've got to view everything, not through Instagram or Facebook Live, but with your own eyes. And again, you even may have tears come to your eyes. You stand at the, at the clubhouse, and you can see almost every hole on the course. There are rolling hills and undulations of the fairways and greens that the camera doesn't capture. It, it's amazing. You hear the roars from across the course during during the tournament, and, uh, and it's exciting, it's exhilarating. And this feeling washes over you, th- this is good, this is right, this is beautiful, this is the life, I never want this to end. But maybe you have had that experience if you got your toes in the sand on a beach, and a drink in your hand, and the sun is shining down, you got your shades on, blue waters ahead, and you got your your spouse, your best friend by your side. Maybe you have experienced this feeling uh, if you've been standing in front of the church and the, the back doors of the church fling open and there is your bride about to greet you at the end of the aisle. Or maybe you have one of those very rare occasions in Tucson where it's, uh, it's a cold, rainy, lazy Saturday morning. And uh, you got nothing to do, no, no more work for the week, and you make some tea, you put on some Ella Fitzgerald, you grab a blanket, and you curl up with some Harry Potter. <laughs> Maybe you have this feeling when it's Christmas morning, and everyone's in their PJs, and there's the smells of Christmas wafting through the house, the food is cooking, the music is on, people are opening gifts. Does it get any better than that? These are moments of glory 
right? Their taste of glory. And we say, this is good. This is right. This is a life. I never want to not experience this. I never want it to end. And that is a right feeling. That's a good feeling. Because that's how you were made. You were made for moments of glory. Not just moments of glory. You were made for a life of glory. Because you were made in the image of the God of glory. Who made you for His glory. That's the only true way to live. But the problem is that we don't always live like that, do we? We don't live like that when, as sinful people, our sins veil the glory of God. It hides the glory of God, and we choose to live a different way. We choose to live how we have determined is good and right and pleasing in our own eyes. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength, our Redeemer. Amen. You'd read with me the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul says there in, in verse 12, since we have such hope. What hope is he talking about? He just spoke about the hope that we have in the glory of God through Jesus. So tonight we're going to talk about hope. Two points. Uh, the reason for hope, the reality of our hope, and then so what? So first, the reason for hope. I don't know where all of y'all are. Um, I don't know how many of you are Christians or not. It doesn't matter if you have faith in the God of the Bible and that you're here tonight. Um, I know something is true about you, and that is that you live with a certain hope in life. Uh, you have an expectation uh, of, of living a life of glory, a good life, a right life, a beautiful life, because that's actually how you're made. That's how God wired you. You have reason to hope because life is meaningful. Everything that you do, uh, you do because you believe that life is rich with meaning. You get up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you put on clean clothes and you head out the door ready for the day because life has meaning. You, you plant flowers and have a garden because life has meaning. You work hard at school because life has meaning. You buy insurance because life has meaning. You, you vote because life has meaning. You love your family and friends well and start new relationships with strangers because life has meaning. You open up your home in acts of hospitality because life has meaning. You bake bread because life has meaning. You learn about the nuances of wine because life has meaning. You listen to someone else's story that may sound either beautiful or boring to you because life has meaning. You serve others that are needy. You work 
for justice among uh, people that are oppressed because life have, has meaning. Everything that you learn for yourself and you teach others, you do because life has meaning. You enjoy music and art and film because life has meaning. You read because life has meaning. The oft-quoted Flannery O'Connor said that people without hope not only don't write novels, they don't read them. You get emotional over anything, maybe everything in life because life has meaning. You do things that make you sweat because life has meaning. Edgar Allan Poe said, the best things in life make you sweaty. And I kind of, I kind of agree with him. You exercise, you hike, you play sports, you get sweaty because life has meaning. Your palms get sweaty over that crush in school because life has meaning. You sit down at the Thanksgiving dinner table and you keep going back for more turkey and you get the meat sweats. Right? Because meat is good and good things in this life evidence a life that has meaning. Life has meaning. But you have reason to hope because life is hard. That sounds strange. What do I mean by that? If you've ever dealt with something like depression, uh, you know that sometimes it's hard to even think about getting out of bed. Life hits you hard and uh, you're dealing with the brokenness of life, pain and sorrow, maybe death in your family or in your circle of friends. You're dealing with confusion and anxiety and worry. And you say, surely this can't be all there is. Life is, there's got to be more to life than this. And you're right, there is. You hope for something better when you've had a difficult time paying bills. You hope for something better when your relationship has ended that you've been in for a number of years. You have hope for something better when you hear news of that good friend of yours who's a young mom with young kids just got a terminal cancer diagnosis. You hope for something better when you get angry over women being disrespected and undervalued or um, injustices being afflicted and inflicted upon minority communities and other atrocities you hear on the news every day and every week. When you experience the reality that life is hard, life is difficult, the deepest part of you hopes for something better because you know at the core of yourself that you were made for something better. And you were. You're made for a life of glory. But it's, it's easier to accept uh, the fact that, that the source of life's hardship is someone else's fault or karma, or whatever you call it, than it is to acknowledge that you may be the source of it all. I was at the gym this last week, and there were two songs that were played on the gym's radio mix that I found fascinating being played back-to-back. The first was Belinda Carlisle's Heaven is a Place on Earth. Um, and that's, I started laughing because I realized that's something that everyone wishes was true, but knows it's really not. And then right after that, they played Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, which a lot of people think, yeah, that, that's true. The irony is that we say, well, I wish heaven was a place on earth, but it's not. Life is hard, but hey, we didn't start the fire. It's been burning since the world's been turning. Not my fault, right? But it is our fault. And that's what, what Paul is getting at. That's what he points to. Back in verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope... We're very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds 
were hardened. Their minds were hardened. Paul has already in the preceding verses referred to the old covenant or uh, the, the Mosaic law as being like a ministry of death to the Israelites, like a ministry of condemnation to them. He's referring back to a scene from Exodus 34 where uh, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai and he's been given the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and he's come down and he reads the commandments before the people. And as he's reading God's word to them, uh, the people notice that his face is shining brilliantly. And they can't stand to look at it. And so he veils his face. Now, why, why can't they stand to look at it? Moses has been in the presence of God's glory, and so his face is shining. But even though this was a people that were made for God's glory, his glory shines on and reveals their sin to them. And it condemns them for it. They feel their guilt, and they don't like it. And instead, they choose to continue living in their sin and harden their hearts. That's this veil imagery that we get. It's a veil of sin. Why are the Israelites wandering in the wilderness to begin with? Why are many not going to make it into the promised land? Because their hearts are hardened. There's a veil over their hearts. They've sinned against God and they're not turning from it. If you don't know this, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I just want to make this very clear. that Because the Bible is very clear. That... The brokenness that you experience in life, all the pain, all the anguish, all of it, is because man, humankind, you and I, keep sinning generation after generation after generation. Why? Because it's encoded in our spiritual DNA. The Lord himself in Scripture, in a number of places, says there is no one who is good. There is no good in us. We're sinful. Sin deceives you into believing that what you have determined is good and right and pleasurable for your life is really the way to live, to live for yourself. Whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel good. And if you're someone who hears God's word and hears God's commandments and you go, ugh, I don't like that. I, I like what the Bible says sometimes. I like what Jesus says sometimes, but I don't like all the dogma. It sounds too judgy. It makes me feel guilty for what I want and what I do. If that's you, then Paul says, your heart is veiled because of your sin. Your heart has become hardened. Life is hard, right? You and I know that life is hard. But we make it hard as we are made hard by our sin. Life is hard, but we make it hard as we're made hard by our sin. How are we made hard? We're made hard by turning good things into ultimate things. That's what we call idolatry. Is Is it good to strive for physical fitness? Yeah, it's good. It's a good thing, but we turn it into an ultimate thing when we believe on some level that that another person will love us more or maybe even love us at all if we look a certain way. Who here is guilty of that other than me? Probably a lot of us, right? It's good to have success, financial success, business success, but you've made it into an ultimate thing when you believe that once you've reached whatever artificial goal, whatever artificial metric you've set for yourself, 
that then you're really ready to live the good life. Who here is guilty of that? I know I am. It's good to be respected among peers, right? Everyone wants to be respected. But we've made that good thing into an ultimate thing when we start embellishing the truth about ourselves to create this fantastic persona so that others will be more attracted to us and think we're the cool guy with the cool stories. Who here is guilty of that? It's idolatry. Psalm 115 talks about how people are are made hard. The Lord says this, Psalm 115, The nation's idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Life is meaningful. Life is hard. But you have reason to hope because God makes promises of a hope of glory to you. Paul is very clear here in 2 Corinthians 3 that living for yourself and living how you have deemed is good and right and pleasing is inferior to how he has designed your life. The old covenant, the Mosaic law, as he says, that was coming to an end, it pointed to a greater glory. A greater glory. What was that greater glory? It was the glory of the promise of a Savior, of a Messiah. It pointed to Jesus. Everything pointed to Jesus. Why would you not want to live in light of something better? Why would you not want to live in light of a greater glory? Why would you want to live an inferior life? Does it make any sense? No. Many of you know the name of Walter Mischel. He was part and really head of the Stanford experiments about 45, 50 years ago. It was the marshmallow test, if y'all are familiar with this. They'd have a bunch of four-year-olds, or at least one four-year-old at a time in a room and, and a table, and sit them in a chair, and they'd put a big marshmallow on the table. And they said, okay, um, I'm about to leave the room, but uh, whatever you do, don't think about eating that marshmallow. And if you, if you disobey, and while I'm gone, you eat that marshmallow, then when I come back, you don't get any more marshmallows. But if you have some restraint and, and I come back and you haven't eaten it, I'm going to give you two marshmallows. What they found out that, that those four-year-olds who restrained themselves, they followed them later on in life and saw that they were more successful in academics and business. But uh, you know, that's, not a, that's not a big opportunity cost right? in that test. I'm probably going to eat the marshmallow. Right? There's no real consequence Oh, I get one instead of two. Big deal. I'm going to eat it. I love marshmallows. Um, That's not how real life works, according to Scripture. Here's a biblical version. If you disobey God and live the life that you want, that you have sought, then you're going to be condemned to death, eternal death in the end. But if you obey God and trust in his design for your life, then you get to experience good things in the presence of his glory forever. Why would you want to live an inferior life? Why wouldn't you want to to live for something better, live for a greater glory? Why would anyone choose to disobey? But they do. 
We do. The hardened heart is always going to choose disobedience because it is veiled by our sin. And it veils the hope of a greater glory and better life that God has designed for us. There's reason to hope, but there's also reality of our hope. As Paul says there in chapter 3, that the hope of God's promise is that only through Jesus Christ can the veil of sin be lifted. It's only through Jesus. There's no other way. Uh, look, if, if life has no meaning, if it's completely meaningless, then all bets are off and we should just go live life as we see fit. Live the selfish life. Right? Winner takes all. Don't ever listen to Scripture. Don't ever listen to Jesus. There's a problem with that, though. And that is that you know life is meaningful. I know life is meaningful. And because we know it's meaningful, then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is meaningful to us. Whether that meaning is that either we... We face God's judgment, God's wrath at the end of all things for our sin. Or we trust in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection means that we get to experience the hope of glory forever and ever with him. That we get glory and not death. Jesus makes sense if life is meaningful. He is our hope. He's one who came not just to clarify the obscurities and ambiguities of a life that we know is broken, but he came to turn right side up what was turned upside down because of our sin. When you face difficulty in life and you have tried to fix the broken parts of your life and yourself, your heart, your mind, and you realize you can't permanently fix it, whether you do this out loud or say it within your own heart, your own mind, you, you cry out for help. Would somebody help me? Would somebody come and fix this? But that's exactly why Jesus came. He came to our aid of sinful people like us to fix what was broken, to fix us, to take away sin, and to, to give us His righteousness, to give us His glory that cannot be taken away. The Israelites could not stand to look at the glory of God that was shining on their selfish desires. Because it, it, it brought out their guilt. It revealed their guilt and shame. We can't stand that either. I don't like to feel guilty. I don't want to feel ashamed for what I think and what I say and what I do. But here's the hope of glory that Paul gets at. And he says it also later in Romans 8. He says that for those who are in Christ Jesus, who trust Jesus... There is no condemnation for you. There's no condemnation. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, there's still time to turn to Jesus. As long as you're breathing, there's time to turn to Jesus and the veil of sin is removed and there's no more condemnation for you. That is the hope that you have. The hope that we all have. It's a hope of new life. That's what we're talking about. It's new life. That's what Paul's getting at. If you're familiar with the C.S. Lewis story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that the, the world of Narnia at the beginning of that book is covered with ice and snow. 
right? Jadis, the white witch, has had the spell on, on the world. And then uh, the, the Jesus figure, uh, Aslan the lion, when he comes back, when he returns to Narnia, everywhere he walks, the snow and the ice melts with his breath. There's, there's new life. There's restored life. There's flowers and grass. He even breathes on hardened statues and turns the stone to flesh. He turns them into living creatures. It's, it's Lewis giving an allusion to the promise of God in Ezekiel 36, where God promises that his spirit, the breath of God, would usher in new life. This is what the Lord says from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. New life. This is what Paul is is getting at in and echoing in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says in verse 13 that the Spirit gives us freedom. What kind of freedom is he talking about? He's talking about the freedom the Spirit gives us is, is a freedom to live as God has designed, as God has desired. A new life with a new heart that doesn't fear condemnation for sin, but basks in God's glory and pursues God's glory in a new life of obedience. The reality of our hope is that we get to live in light of that glory, of God's glory, right now. Right now, if we trust in the saving work of Jesus and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. So how do you want to live? Do you want to live the inferior life that leads to death? Or do you want to live the life of greater glory, the life that God has marked out for you in Jesus that cannot be taken away. There's a reason for hope. There's a reality of our hope in Christ. So what? So what? What are some ways you know if you are living in light of God's glory? How do you know if you're living in light of God's glory? Three three things. First, you know you're living in light of God's glory if your life and those around you and the world around you uh, starts to, to mean more in light of the saving work of God from your sin through Jesus. If your life and everything around you, the people around you, start to mean more, you know you're living in light of God's glory. The glory of God gives you a new vision of how to see things in life. In C.S. Lewis's last Narnia book, uh, the, the last battle. The old Narnia has passed away. The new Narnia has come. It's this, uh, the old Narnia was filled with what, with what we experience, brokenness in life and pain and anguish and sorrow and death. But that's not a reality in the new Narnia. It's, it's a glorious world, a glorious life. And they're comparing the old Narnia to the new Narnia. And this is what is said. The new Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. It was a unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. 
The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Bree he he come further up, come further in. The moments of glory, those tastes of glory that you experience in this life point to a greater, more permanent glory. There's a reason why we love this life so much, why we have hope in this life. is because sometimes it looks like the life of glory God has marked out for us in Jesus. The Lord gives us a new vision for how to look at life as He gives us new life. Do we still sin? Yeah, all the time. But God's Spirit is transforming us to look more like Jesus. Not so that we would become less human, but to actually become truly human like He designed us. And here's what that means. That, that means that, that we do have that new vision where everything around us, everyone and everything, means more to us. It means we can take up the, the, the mantle of Adam, his call to be a steward of all creation to be steward of our heart and the hearts of others in relationships. How do you know if you're living a lot of God's glory? Second, if you increasingly experience God's glory in the ordinary. As, as one said, we are called to do ordinary things with an extraordinary love that flows out of the heart and love of God. I was thinking about this this week. I don't know, um, because I have a five-month-old, I don't know if you get more ordinary than changing diapers. Um, I wouldn't call it mundane. It's not mundane. Um, it's a dirty job, and I've got to do it. Um, but it's a menial task. It's very ordinary. Uh, can, can you experience God's glory changing diapers? Yeah, you can. Um, I need help to see that in the ordinary parts of life. There, there's a, a prayer book called Every Moment Holy that uh, my wife and I uh, go through that takes very ordinary moments of life. And, and they're, they're prayers that help us see uh, and help us experience God, God's glory in these moments. They actually have a prayer for changing diapers. I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> Heavenly Father... In such menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost, for it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that like bright ragged patches are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swaddles this child. I'm not just changing a diaper. By love and service, I'm tending a budding heart that rooted early in such grace-filled devotion might one day be more readily inclined to bow to your compassionate conviction, knowing itself then as both a receptacle and a reservoir of heavenly grace. So this little act of diapering, though in form sometimes felt as base drudgery, might be better described as one of 10,000 acts by which I am actively creating a culture of compassionate service and selfless love to shape the life of this family and this beloved child. So take this unremarkable act of necessary service, O Christ, and in your economy, let it be multiplied into that greater outworking of worship and of faith, a true investment and in the incremental advance of your kingdom across generations. Open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from the fixed vantage of eternity, O Lord how the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart, 
how the changing of a heart might sit upstream of the changing of the world. How do you know you're living a light of God's glory if with increasing measure everyone and everything means more to you because of God's saving work from your sin through Jesus? You know if you're living a light of God's glory when you start experiencing God's glory in, in the ordinary parts of life. And thirdly and lastly, if you increasingly see the greatness of your sin but plead the merits of an even greater Savior. There is none of us, there is no one on this earth who is too far gone, who is too far off from the saving mercy of Jesus. Whatever you can think is the worst about you, you're actually worse than that. I'm worse than that. But God's love and God's mercy and God's grace is greater than our greatest sin. And we need to hear that. And we need to know that every single moment, every single second of every single day, we need to be covered in the love, the mercy, the grace, the righteousness, the glory of God in Christ. That is our hope. That prayer for changing diapers, it ends like this. Let the daily doing of this be a reminder to me of the constant cleansing and covering of my own sin. That I, helpless as this babe, and more often in need, enjoy in the active mercies of Christ. Guys, there is no greater glory than living in the light of the mercies of Christ, of his finished work for us. And if that is true, and it is true, then let's get busy living. Let me pray for us.